thank God for an empty grave. And when we come to the time of death, depending on what our relationship with the risen Lord is, there is life after death. There is an empty grave we need not fear. And so we covet that for Jim and Darlene Letourneau, uh, Jim Widmeyer, their family, as we uh, think of how life has come to an end for a loved one. And we just place him into the hands of the risen Lord. Father, we just give you thanks and praise for the message that this song has brought to us, that you do reign forever because you have brought light into the darkness of the grave and you bring life everlasting for anyone who believes in you as Lord and Savior. We ask this in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the, the text that we have before us today, which is the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We continue our journey through this book and uh, follow along as I lead us in the reading. Beginning with verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they also may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let us pray. Lord, make me that sensitive to your holiness that I might indeed be aware of my sin and fall before you in humility and confession. Lord, we just ask that you open up to us now the truth of your word, that we may apply it in our own life as we live it this week. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Well, friends, we live in a day where the doctrine of self-esteem is assumed to be a basic Christian belief. Not only Christian psychologists, but also many popular Bible teachers emphasize that you must learn to love yourself first and accept yourself before you can truly love God and others. And then I read John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards both of whom denounce self-love and self-esteem as being radically opposed to biblical humility. And people may wonder, well, why would I want to confront myself? Am I not supposed to love myself and feel good about myself? Self-confrontation seems to be as much fun as having a root canal. But the Word of God, and Jesus in particular, confront us continuously with our sin. It's safe to say that if you are not using Scripture to confront your life, then you are not growing in Christ. Scripture is given for reproof and correction, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16. And when Paul exhorted Timothy to preach the Word, he went on to say in chapter 4, verse 2, 2 Timothy, Proclaim the message, persist in it whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Now if a builder comes to a construction site and he finds it littered with uh, the remains of an old building, the first thing he has to do is to clear away the rubble. Well, our lives are littered with the rubble of sin. And the Lord continuously has to clean out the old life of sin so that he can build a new life of holiness. So his word constantly confronts us with areas where we need to judge our sin. One of the main proponents of self-esteem says that The reason he follows Jesus is because he's such a positive person. Well, he must have cut Luke 14 out of his Bible. Because Jesus was invited to a dinner at the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and he accepted that invitation. But he was hardly a polite dinner guest, because it was on the Sabbath. And no sooner had he walked in the door when right in front of him was a man with dropsy. And uh, the Pharisees were trying to see whether he would violate their rules of healing on the Sabbath or not. 
Now, it was on the Sabbath, and he no sooner had walked in the door when he saw this man suffering from dropsy or edema, as the term is in the medical profession. And it is a swelling of the joints or the whole body. Oftentimes, it is caused by a defective heart or diseased kidney or liver. Now, Jesus could have told the man, why don't you come back after sundown, and then I'll heal you because then he wouldn't have to confront the Pharisees. But he didn't do that. He healed the man on the spot and then verbally confronted his critics. As if that were not enough for one day, the Lord also proceeded to rebuke the dinner guests who sought out the places of honor at the table. While everyone's jaws gaped open, he proceeded to rebuke the host for inviting the wrong guests to his party. And then when one of the guests tried to ease the tension by exclaiming, well, the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed, Jesus told a parable to show that many of the Jews would be shut out from the kingdom, while many of the Gentiles would be included. Now you're going to have to wait until January before you come to that section of the next part of our chapter 14 text. And Jason will be dealing with that. But now, the next three Sundays, he's going to have a series on what is the vision that he has for the Lakes Free Congregation. So we'll be excited to hear that. Jesus was very confrontational. And if you hang out with him very long you will find that he confronts you with your sin. And he does it out of love for a good reason. And the reason is this. Jesus confronts our sin so that we will inherit rewards for all eternity. Jesus confronts our sin so that we will receive rewards for all eternity. Now, this text reveals three areas where Jesus confronts our sin, but before we look at these, let me point out that Jesus accepted the dinner invitation from unbelievers, but he didn't just go there to socialize. He went there with a mission. He was always about doing his father's business. Now, if you socialize with unbelievers, make sure that you go with that same sense of mission. Prepare to speak out boldly for the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, you may end up compromising your faith or even be drawn back into the worldly behavior in which you were engaged in one time. The first thing that Jesus confronts us with is our sin of religious hypocrisy. We find that in verses 1 through 6. Luke does not say, and so we can't be sure, but there is some reason to believe that the Pharisees planted this man with dropsy in front of Jesus to see whether he would violate their healing rules on the Sabbath. Because Luke says they were watching him closely. For what reason? We're going to bring you down. We're going to trip you up, Jesus. And if they, so, so Jesus raised the question, 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or is it not? Well, that put the Pharisees in a bind because if they said that healing is permitted, then they would concede his point and they raised problems about their traditions, which they had added to the laws of Moses through the years. And if they said that healing is not permitted, then they would come across as being uncaring. Besides, if they had invited this man to be there, it cast questions on their motives for them to say, no healing is permitted. So they kept silent. They said nothing. Note the simple manner that Luke reports this miracle. He says, Jesus took the man by the hand, healed him, and sent him on his way. Now, normally, dropsy would take several days for it to subside. But this man, he went from being bloated to being normal like that. Luke doesn't say anything about the man's or the witness's reaction. And then Jesus follows up the miracle by asking them a rhetorical question in order to underscore his point. Which one of you, having a son or an ox fall into the well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you bring that person or that animal out on the Sabbath? Some manuscripts read donkey instead of son, but the evidence, I think, is clearly in favor of son. That was the original reading. And Jesus is saying, if your son, or for that matter, your ox falls into the well on the Sabbath, you wouldn't hesitate to pull that animal or that person out. But you think that this, you, this man ought to continue on in his suffering? In other words, they cared more about their animals than about this man. And Jesus was exposing their lack of love and their religious hypocrisy. Now, there are more characters of hypocrites than those that are listed here in the text. But let me note just five. Number one, hypocrites study the word for ammunition against others, but they don't apply it to themselves. I have seen husbands who have used the word like a club against their wives. She doesn't submit to me as the head of the home. And I say, did you know that the Bible never commands you to be the head of your wife? And they sputter, what do you mean? It sure does. But in reality, it doesn't. The Bible instructs wives that their husbands are their head. But when it comes to the husband, the command is, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for them. And I'll ask, how are you sacrificing your time and selfish, selfish interest to serve your wife and your children? Hypocritical husbands want to lord it over their wives and children, abusing the authority that the Lord gives for the husband to, to bless and protect the family. That's the role of a husband. But they don't want to lay down their selfish ways in service of their wives and children as the Scripture confronts us. They're using the word for ammo against others, but not to confront their own sinful selfishness. 
Secondly, hypocrites target and try to bring down anyone who confronts their sin with the word. Why did the Pharisees invite Jesus to the dinner? What really was their motive? Well, from the evidence we have, I suggest that it was not to learn from Jesus. It was not to find out if possibly he was wrong and Jesus was right. He invited Jesus to dinner in order to set him up and then bring him down. He and his cronies were watching, trying to trip Jesus up. I've had people in church through the years of ministry who were constantly critical of minor doctrinal differences in what they heard in my sermons. Always ready to pounce when I didn't agree with them. One matter that seems to be increasingly common is that they like to use the King James Version of the Bible. And if you didn't, then you were liberal. Invariably, these people had no idea of the scholarly issues involved. They just sat in judgment on any pastor who didn't use the King James Version of the Bible. Thirdly, hypocrites care more about their man-made roles than about people being right with God in their hearts. Now, these Pharisees couldn't care less about this hurting man. So what if he was suffering? Jesus was breaking the rules. Hypocrites are usually more caring about the external conformity than about inward righteousness. They aren't concerned about whether they please God in their thought lives. They just want everyone to follow the rules. How you look, what you do. If Jesus had just observed the Sabbath rules, they would have left him alone. But Jesus always dealt with heart issues, like having a pure thought life, being free from anger, being forgiving from the heart, toward those who may have wronged you. Number four, hypocrites bend the rules for their own purposes, but they apply them rigidly to others. These men would do what they had to do, Sabbath or no Sabbath. There were ways to get around the rules if you needed to. For example, a Sabbath day's journey could be only so many steps from their home to the synagogue. But they could be extended if you knew how to do it, so that you could travel where you wanted to go. Or they would get their own son or ox out of the well on the Sabbath, but no healing allowed. I wonder what Jesus would have done if he had healed the Pharisee's son or wife, would they have allowed that? Number five, hypocrites often ignore overwhelming evidence in order to persist in their sin. Now, Jesus powerfully and miraculously heals this man, but the Pharisees, they completely ignore the evidence. And this wasn't the first time that this sort of thing had happened, because Jesus cast out a demon from a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the report of that spread like wildfire. 
If you want to hear that over again, go back to Pastor Rick's sermon on chapter 4. He healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees, they responded with rage in Luke chapter 6. On the Sabbath, he healed the woman bent over for 18 years, but the synagogue official was indignant, as we read in chapter 13. So how much more evidence did they need to wake up and say, well, maybe we're wrong and Jesus is right? This really shows us how deeply entrenched this sin of religious hypocrisy is and how diligent we must be to root it out of ourselves when Jesus confronts it. And if your overwhelming biblical evidence, if you're not careful, you can build a case to defend your point of view and ignore the overwhelming biblical evidence that convicts of sin. So God's word applies to all of us, especially to those who teach and preach. John Calvin said it would be better for the preacher to break his neck going into the pulpit than for him not to be the first to follow God. Or John Owen put it this way, a man preaches that sermon only well to others, which preaches itself in his own soul. If the word does not dwell with power in us, then it will not go forth from us with power. The point is, to avoid hypocrisy, we all must follow the word to confront our sin and respond with repentance and obedience and not with hardness of heart. Number two, Jesus confronts our sin of selfish pride. In these verses, Jesus turns the tables. Instead of the Pharisees observing Jesus, Jesus is observing the Pharisees. But his motives were totally different than theirs. He wasn't watching them in order to trip them up, but in order to confront them with their sin and hypocrisy so that they could repent and be right with God. Hypocrisy and pride are related sins. And those who keep up outward appearances to impress others are invariably self-focused and proud. These men did what they did to, in order to be noticed by others and to gain honor for themselves. In Matthew 23, verses 5 to 12, Jesus says, They do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries, lengthen their tassels, love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But as for you, do not be called rabbi, because you have one teacher, and you are all brothers." Do not call anyone on earth your father, because you have one father who is in heaven. And do not be called masters either, because you have one master, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is showing that the 
the, uh, the way of pride leads to ultimate disgrace. And the way of humility leads to ultimate reward. If a proud man makes it through this life without being humbled, he is in for a rude awakening when it comes to the judgment day. There the proud who have trusted in themselves and their own good deeds will be brought low before God. The humble who have recognized their own sin and have cried out to Jesus for mercy, they are the ones that will be exalted in the eternal presence. When Jesus tells the dinner guests that they should seek out the lowest seats, he's not advocating a self-focused scheme as to how you can really end up in the first seat by taking the last seat or the worst seat. For a man to do that, he would still be operating out of pride, which is the very thing that Jesus is confronting here. Rather, the point is, Everyone before God ought to feel that the lowest place is the proper place. The more that we grow in grace, the more we will grow in humility. Biblical humility is the recognition that everything good that we are and have comes as an undeserved gift from God. As Paul put it to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, then why did you boast as though you didn't receive it? Biblical humility is a recognition that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. That's what Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 5. And so I do not trust in myself, but in the Lord. Biblical humility is always accompanied by a growing awareness of the depths of my own sinfulness, along with a growing appreciation for the abundant grace of God that is shown to me in Jesus Christ. As Psalm 130, verse 3 puts it, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Biblical humility runs completely counter to the predominant self-esteem teaching that has flooded many churches today. We are being told that at the root of our problem is the fact that we do not think highly enough of ourselves. For example, I have seen a brochure from a well-known Christian treatment program that has glowing endorsements from several well-known Christian leaders and the brochure explains, quote, Part of our success is found in the unique ability to target and resolve problems of low self-esteem. At the core of all emotional problems and addictive disorders is low self-worth. It is never the only problem, but it is so major an issue that if not dealt with adequately, one is kept from experiencing lasting positive results. Contrast that with John Calvin, who wrote, Here, then, is what God's truth requires us to seek in examining ourselves. It requires the kind of knowledge that will strip us of all confidence in our own ability, deprive us of all occasion for boasting, and lead us to submission 
I am quite aware how much more blessed pleasing is that principle which invites us to weigh our good traits rather than to look upon our miserable want and dishonor, which ought to overwhelm us with shame. There is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly than to be flattered. For since blind self-love is innate in all mortals, they are most freely persuaded that nothing inheres in themselves that deserves to be considered hateful. Thus, even with no outside support, the utterly vain opinion generally obtains credence that man is abundantly sufficient of himself to lead a good and blessed life. But if any take a more modest attitude and concede something to God so as not to appear to claim everything for themselves, they so divide the credit that the chief basis for boasting and confidence remains in themselves. Nothing pleases man more than the sort of alluring talk that tickles the pride that itches in it is very marrow. Therefore, in nearly every age, when anyone publicly extolled human nature in most favorable terms, he was listened to with applause. Throughout the Institutes and his other writings, Calvin extols humility as the virtue and pride as the main vice of the human race. And it's amazing to me how we could have gotten so far off base in our day when Scripture is so thoroughly confronting us in our pride and continually calls us to humble ourselves before God and others. Finally, Jesus confronts our sin of using people rather than loving them. Now, Jesus doesn't stop here with rebuking the guests for their sinful pride. He goes on to rebuke the host for his sin of using people rather than loving them. And Jesus is not teaching us that it is wrong to invite your friends and neighbors to a, a dinner party, but he's making the point that you are not being generous and loving if you only invite those who can return the favor and especially if you invite the rich with the motive of what can they do to advance your life. That's just the plain old selfishness. The true ministry out of Christian love serves and gives without thought of what will be returned to me. It isn't manipulative, serving for what you can get out of it, as Christians, we should serve others out of the love for God and for others. To go Jesus' way, you have to have your focus on eternity and not on rewards of this life. If you have to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, often there are many blessings that come back on you in this life when you serve the Lord, and you may least expect it. But often, there are not any visible rewards here and now. You serve, nobody notices. You give to help a needy person, and you may get ripped off in the process. Or the person may not even say thanks. One test of whether your motives are right in your service for Christ is... 
Am I hurt when I don't get the recognition that I deserve? Or another test is, what is your attitude toward the poor and the hurting? If you're only willing to serve those who can pay you back or who might later be able to advance your cause, that's a way of using people, not loving them. Jesus confronts our motive for service. Any selfish motive in seeing Christ is sin. So in conclusion, we've all met people who don't take showers often enough. They're difficult to be close to because of the stench. Well, the same is true of people who don't use the Word of God, letting it expose and scrub the dirt out of our hearts. Don't read the Word with the thought, boy, that's something my wife ought to hear or my husband ought to hear. Or don't think this is something my kids ought to take to heart. No, we are to read the word and apply this. Don't think it's for anybody else. Read it and pray, Lord, confront me with my sin and cleanse it out of my life. Expose my religious hypocrisy. Show me my selfish pride. Reveal how I use people rather than love them. And fill me with your holy love. Let's pray. Lord, I'm coming to realize just how dangerous pride is in my life. And how important true godly humility is to the heart of God. I read in your word that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And I begin to see the devastating and destructive nature of pride and the true blessing that comes from a heart that is humble and contrite in spirit. So Lord, keep me from falling prey to the many temptations that pride seems to scatter in my path. Where I want to be the center of attention and desire to receive all the acclaim, the glory, the, that rightly belongs to you, Lord. So, Lord, I ask that you teach your ways and show me how I may clothe myself in godly humility toward one another. For as Peter teaches, God opposes the proud, but he shows grace to the humble. Thank you, Lord, for opening your word to me helping me to see the beautiful truth about humility. And I ask that you would work a good work in my life day by day until I am more like Christ and less like me. In Jesus' name, amen.